Welcome to the Saving Grace Adventist Church Sermon Podcast. We pray that you will be blessed by the Word of God. Our Father and our God, we come now thanking you that we can turn our eyes upon Jesus. And that's just what we want to do. We want to turn away from the world now, Lord. We can turn away from the bills and the problems and the health issues and the challenges that present us in life. But we know that it doesn't matter what the challenge is. We have the solution already. The answer is in Jesus. And so today we pray for your very presence. Be with us in these next moments, especially as we open your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis, the second chapter. The title of our message is Without a Fight. Without a Fight. Would you repeat that with me? Without, without, a, fight. without a Fight. What am I talking about? Without a Fight. Let's go to Genesis, the second chapter. Genesis 2. Brother Stefan read for us and led us very early. And I'm going to go back and look at these scriptures. I want to put it in your mind. And let's go through with it in our mind's eye. You have seen these verses many times. And let's look at that story. See what we can extract today. Without a Fight. I'm in Genesis, second chapter, verse 7, Genesis 2 and 7. It's on your screen. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Isn't that right, folks? The original Hebrew says that when God formed man and he made him of the dust of the ground, the word breathe, that when it says he breathed into his nostrils, there's different terms for for breathe and for breath and for this giving of one to another of the uh, life essentials. But in the Greek, it talks about theonoustos, and that is the breathing. God breathed into man. But in the Hebrew, this word was a little different. It talks about the ruach, ruch, and that is the Hebrew word for life. And where it says that God breathed into Adam, the original Hebrew says that God gave, listen to me, now follow me, God gave one simple puff. He didn't, he didn't blow and breathe into him over a long period of time. He didn't give him CPR. God gave one puff, just like that. And Adam, who stood there, made from the dust, became a living soul. Why did God just give a puff? Because what God gave Adam was the very essence of life. He gave him life itself in his puff. And so God couldn't give Adam too much. <laughs> he gave Adam the essence of what he was. That's why Adam was made in his image. And he said, I give you a puff, just a little bit. And that initially started Adam. And I want you to know that it gave Adam something that perhaps later on we'll talk about called the vital force. Would you say that with me? Vital force. Ellen White talks about vital force. And it says that Adam had this special vital force. And what God gave to Adam right then in one puff was the vital force that has carried down through the thousands of years, the billions of people into you and I, and that's how you live today. Every day you get up again and you keep going, you get up again. That's vital force that God gave through Adam in that one puff. But God held back because there's so much more. I'm trying to tell you our God is a powerful God. He's a mighty God. Let's go forward, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
and a river of Eden to water the garden. From thence it parted and became into four heads. Now our black history begins. And the name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Remember that, Havilah and gold. And the gold in that is in that land is good, and there is delium and onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, and the same is that it compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river, Hidekel, that it is which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Biblical historians, archaeologists, ancient paleontologists all agree that the cradle of civilization, the beginning of mankind, had to be somewhere in the northern portion of Africa and in those portions just northeast of there. And it's an area that we now know as we look at the map, and we call it the Middle East. The land that we now talk about as Africa was not called Africa in the beginning. It was actually named, and you know why it was named. It was named, anybody know the first name of the land, what it was called? It was the land of... H-A-M, the land of Ham. How come it was called the land of Ham? Because we know the descendants of Noah. Go with me in your Bibles now to Genesis, the ninth chapter. Genesis, the ninth chapter, in verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Cana. And these are the three sons of Noah, and of them the whole earth was overspread. And we see that the nations that came uh, from the three sons of Noah are the ones that inhabited all of the earth. From Shem came the Semitic tribes and the Hebrews, which we see uh, Israel and also the Arab nations came from Shem. From Japheth, those nations that became the Caucasians, Caucasian nations that went northern to the areas in the cold areas. And from Ham was those areas that covered, of course, uh, all of Africa and those nations that we consider dark-skinned peoples. But in the beginning, it was called the land of Ham. That's what it was actually called. And then it went to be the land of Cush. And on the maps, you will see Cush. And the whole area that is now considered Africa, that continent was considered Cush. And then it became Havilah. And you see in verse 11 of chapter 2, it says Havilah. I want you to notice that it said it was lots of gold there and lots of natural resources. Eventually, it became called Africa. We would think that it would be in black people who named it Africa and called it that, but it was actually the Romans that actually coined and termed the name Africa, Africa, and that's what we have seen from that time before. And we know the story of the slave trade and how things began and how slaves uh, were taken from certain portions of Africa. Uh, much of it was taken from the western coastal areas of Africa. Uh, from Sierra Leone and the Ivory Coast and now what is called Congo and Angola. Lots of those areas where slaves were taken and put on ships and boats and, and of course taken across the ocean and brought to the western world. Now they weren't just brought to one area. Many of the slaves, if you will look and see where they came from, you'll see the slave masters that became involved because uh, the transportation of slaves became a very large business. Lots of money involved. And so those slave traders from Portugal, they came and they brought slaves and they went down south and ended up in Brazil. You'll see the areas of Brazil. 
Hints, you'll see the language in Brazil is predominantly Portuguese. Then there were those in a lot of the Latino countries that went to Central America, and that term, and, th and that ended up being in a lot of the areas in Central America. Along the way, some stopped in uh, Dominican Republic, and of course, Puerto Rico, and different areas of that nature. And then many were taken directly, of course, to the story of Jamaica, which you can tell me, and I don't have to tell you about that, and some that were there, and transported back to England. And so you'll see much of Jamaica speaks the Queen's English very properly because of the influence that England had there. Incidentally, who does this? The Queen of England, isn't that right? Do you ever see the Queen waving like this? Not at all, it's not appropriate. It is not appropriate for who she is. It is because she knows who she is. I'll come back to that. We need to know who we are. And if we know who we are, act appropriately when you know who you are. And then another portion of the slaves were taken, of course, to America in the areas I lived in Richmond, Virginia. Many of the slaves that were bought were docked in Richmond. It was one of the cities that was a slave trade city. And I was living in Richmond just the last year, just a few months ago. And do you know just a few years ago when I, when I came and moved to Richmond area, downtown in the downtown areas is a, is a place called Shaco Bottom. And in Shaco Bottom, they still had the, they still had the place where they would have the slaves that they would come and stand. They were concrete slabs with chains where they would chain the men. This was just a few years ago. Just so happened after I came there and I prayed and I went downtown and I saw that and they had the, the, the stocks and the, and the blocks of concrete with the chains were still there in downtown Richmond. And I, it hurt my spirit to stand there and look at it. But within a few months of the time that I was there, a large tornado came through, the hurricane that came in. And do you know it went right down to downtown Richmond, ripped up all the stocks and washed them out? happened and that is in the history there but it was there for many years to see and as I think about uh, the atrocities that took place during slavery it is amazing and we know the stories and I don't want to go into all the details and we know all the things that happened and, and, and how, how, how the slaves went through uh, so much I don't even know how to find words for it and how they were packed in ships and the abuse and, and some say how many were lost overboard and in the middle passage some say hundreds of thousands some say six ten thousand some say millions were transported so many were lost but as I looked at the slave trade, I had one question. My question was, these people were taken from their homeland. And from all that I can read and study and all my understanding is that in Africa there were kings and princes and there were warriors and there were strong people who held their villages and their areas together. And there were those, of course, the black males of who were warriors and who were strong and who were physically fit and who were sharp and who were those who would take care of all the things that that village needed. And when I looked at it, I had one question. My question was this, how do you get people of this nature? How do you get strong warriors? How do you get those who are black men who are protecting their village and who are taking care of their families? How do you get them to come and be on a ship in chains and to lay down without a fight? We know many of the stories, and there, of course, there are stories of those who there were those who did resist. But in general, you will see with the slave ships, you had small portions of Caucasians. You had six, eight, ten, maybe 20 men who would come, and somehow they would fill that ship with 200, 300, 500 slaves. 
And how did that happen? How do you get strong men? How do you get warriors who stand, who've been free all their lives? How do you get those men to come out of that village and put on chains and lay down in the bottom of a ship? How do you do that without a fight? That question went on in my mind, and as you think about it, let's look at it. We're going to explore it just a little bit and go a little bit further into seeing it. There is a way that you can take a strong male or female. There is a way that you can have them to lie down and consent. There is a way that you can do it. And it was done. How was it done without a fight? I want to give you a story of a, it's a true story of one of the many stories that were told and that came out of slavery. This is the story of a king, a particular king, and I'll pronounce his name the best that I know, King Nzinga Mbeba. Mbeba, a very African name, and he was one of the kings who was reigning at that time. Well, the portion of the king, king of Portugal came to meet him and developed a trade relationship with him. And he did three things as he began to talk to this mighty king of this African nation. He did not talk to him about slavery or anything of that at all. He spoke to him of trade and of benefiting him, and he did three things. Here are the three things that he did. Number one, he won the king's confidence. He won the king's, what did I say? Confidence. He won his confidence. I'll tell you how he did it. Number two, he made an attempt to change his name. He changed his name. Number three, he changed the person he worshipped, the deity that he worshipped. How did he do this? All this was done through one particular word, and that word I will come to very shortly. The three objectives as this particular king came, he came and began to win the king's confidence. How? He, saw, he started to talk to him about how great he was. He said, oh, king and baby, you are so great. I'm looking at how you rule your people and how strong you are. And he began to use flattery. Do you hear me? What word did he use? Flattery. He began to flatter him and he began to convince him how wonderful he was. He then offered him, he said, I can make what you have even better. I can offer to you so you can better your people and your lands. So he offered him something better than what he had. And then he gave him a false sense of pride and power. He said, a king like you, if you just had the few things that I could offer you, you could accomplish so much. And so then what he did was he began to talk to him about trade. He said, I'd like to set up some type of trade and give you some of the things that I can bring from Europe that you have not seen and that you do not have access to. I will give these things to you just for our trade relationship. Remember, I told you that Havilah was a land that was inhabited with lots of what? In those times, the gold was in places where it would be on top of the earth where you could come to. And these Portuguese and those in other areas knew about that gold and the natural resources that are so readily in the continent of Africa. And so they wanted to get those things. And so then what he did was number two. He said, I want you to come and I want to make you somebody special, not only in your land, but in our land too. And so he transported this king to Portugal. And there he had the pope, the pope, the head of the Catholic Church. He had the pope come and he said, I want to do something special for you and for your son. So I want to change your son's name and I want to make him a bishop. So he said, I want to promote your son and make him a bishop so that he will have power with your people and with my people when he comes around those people. So we want to change his name and make him a bishop. Now remember the king's name, the African king's name is Mbeba. And so then um, I speak some Swahili, so then my name was Wanamakubwa in Swahili, but the M is silent, and so Mbeba. And so then he told Mbeba, I want to change the name of your son. 
said, I'm going to change your name. And here's the name that we want to give you. Are you ready for that strong African name that he had from his origin? And he changed him to this name. He said, we're going to call you Bishop Henry. Did that sink in? From an African name of Mbeba, he called him Henry, after Henry VIII, of course. And so then that began to develop something. And then he said, number three, we're going to come in and teach you our religion. So the three things that came in. If you remember in the Bible with Daniel, remember when Nebuchadnezzar brought Daniel and the three Hebrew boys? He said, I want the finest and the best. And he came and he said, the first thing we want to do is we want to feed you our food. And then the second thing we want to do is change your name. We want to change Daniel and the three boys' names. That is exactly what happens. And so then through that, those three things were successful. And what happened was they developed a trade relationship that now had this king thinking that he was doing something good. Now, I want you to know there were some kings that was just about finances and they sold out. But most of the kings at that time, they were uh, brought in and they brought their people down to come and to consent to being seen and to being led to something that was going to better them. They were all led there, and everything was accomplished, and they did what they wanted to do through one word. I want you to see this one word. Go with me to Revelation. We'll come back to Genesis, but in Revelation, here's the word I want to get to. Revelation, the 12th chapter. Revelation, the 12th chapter, we have read it before. The way that you do, if you want to uh, uh, dominate, if you want to find yourself in control of those people who do not have or who have something that you do not have, or who are stronger than you, here is how you do it. Revelation 12, verse 9. Revelation 12 and verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Would you read the rest with me? Which? Which deceiveth the whole world. Deception. You cannot overtake a strong warrior like that physically one-to-one. -one. And so they deceived them. And deception is what was used. And deception is what the slave masters used. They came and deceived them and told them they were going to be at a better place and lined them up and brought them down to the beach and told them they'd have to stand in certain ways. And then they would put them onto ships after they were chained. And then the atrocities began. But they had to deceive them, to trick them, to fool them. And Satan has done this same thing from the very beginning. In Revelation earlier in chapter 12, it says that his tail drew a third of the angels. In heaven, we are told in the spirit of prophecy that when Satan came to the third of the angels, you know, I'm always amazed at that. How do you get a third of the angels who are in God's very presence? Are you following me? They were in the presence of holiness. There was no sin anywhere. How do you get a third of them to come over to the other side and fight against God without a fight. The angels, a third of the angels did the same thing. They came because Satan used deception. And when Satan came to them, he did not say anything directly against God. He simply planted thoughts. He said to the angels, according to patriarchs and prophets, it said that he went to the angels and he suggested, do you know that God has a law? The angel says, a law. they were surprised. Ellen White says, they came to them as, what's a, a law? God has a law. And he said, yeah, I think that God is withholding something from us. He just planted the thoughts, and the angels began to think. And then he said, you know, look at who you are. You are strong, mighty beings. Look at you. You are beings of light. 
You are intelligent creatures. And the angel said, yes. And he said, why is it that God would withhold anything? He just suggested thoughts. And that's how deception is planted. Listen, so they came over and those angels joined Satan's side without a fight in heaven. In the Garden of Eden, he deceived Eve, and Eve came over to Satan without a fight. Do you know in the Garden of Eden that before it was over with, Eve came back and told Adam, Adam, I think that God is holding something from us, and I have a newfound friend in the serpent. If you read the story and pray for God and prophet, she actually came over and said, this friend has been kind enough to inform us about what God is not telling us. Deceive deception and that is how the slave trade the base of the slave trade really took place and we can go into all that and I don't want to do that now because this is not a history class right now this is a sermon about Jesus amen this is a message about what is going on in our lives but I want you to see right there in Revelation the 12th chapter in verse 9 that the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, and he deceiveth the whole world. And Satan continues to deceive. He's deceiving you, and he's deceiving me. You say, how so? We are all led by deception. And so what happened to these kings, they became Europeanized, is what it was, and they developed something called a Eurocentric point of view. They saw everything now from a Eurocentric point of view. Your name is Henry now. You're a bishop in the Catholic Church. You're worshiping idols and think as they develop things that they did not do before, but now they change their thinking through deception, and they now have a Eurocentric point of view. Are you following me when I say Eurocentric? They see everything through the eyes of a European. Now, if you're a true African, you have an Afrocentric point of view. If you're an Asian, you have an Asian-centric point of view. But they had a European or Eurocentric point of view. Now, I'm going to tell you something that some of you will not like. Everybody in here has a Eurocentric point of view. Maybe these three not. <laughs> Do you know why? It's because of the deception and the way things have planted in our mind. Today, if I came to preach here, and I had on a pair of old jeans with a hole in the center, and they were hanging low, and I had a big shirt on here, uh, I had a shirt, if I had a Marcus Garvey shirt on, I'd be okay here right today, but if I had on a big shirt here with Bob Marley on it, right? No woman, no lie. If I had that on and I came to the pulpit... Huh? How would you feel about me speaking and giving you the word of God and preaching to you uh, from the word of God? You would have a problem with that. Isn't that true? Isn't it true? But today, because I came in my nice little suit and my little red tie, I look pretty good today, don't I? You accept me because this is a Eurocentric point of view. This tie and suit jacket came from Europe. The tie, if you really knew the history behind it, you wouldn't want me to wear it at all. It's a very nasty, sensual background on it that came from Europe. And in the 17th century, these suits came from businessmen who were trying to influence and deceive other people. But we have come to accept this, that this man is okay. This man is educated because I have a Eurocentric look. That goes further. The system that we teach our kids, the way that our kids are taught, the testing system where you go in, you read five chapters, you come in Monday, you're going to take a test on it. That's Eurocentric. That's not the way the African mind even learned. The way that we deal with finances is all Eurocentric. And so we have lost something in that. And I could go forward further with that, but I want to take you one step further. So we know that we were born Afrocentric, our ancestors all the way back, 
but we have been Europeanized and now we are Eurocentric also in the way that we consider what is successful and what is not even in the words that we use and the language that we have and the way we think about one another and the way we judge and misjudge each other Eurocentric it's not the way Africa even was but that's all that we knew. Why is that? I want to tell you why. Go with me now to John, the eighth chapter. <clears throat> Don't worry, we're coming toward the close. But I told you all about that before when I say I'm coming to a close, what that means, right? Pastor laughs, because when a pastor says he's coming toward a close, it really means absolutely nothing. <laughs> I'm just heading in that direction. Doesn't, doesn't mean a lot. Doesn't mean a whole lot. Coming toward the close is true. I'm coming that way, but doesn't mean a whole lot. In John, the eighth chapter, John 8 and verse 44, John 8 and 44, follow me now. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh his own, for he is what? A liar and the father of it. So now, since you have been introduced to sin, and I have been introduced to sin, and David said in Psalms 51 and 5, he says, I was conceived in sin. My mother brought me here, isn't that right? In sin. So because of that, all of us in the room have a sin-centric point of view. We see life through sin. From the grave. From, from, from birth, when we come from mother, we start sinning. A little child learns how to sin before anybody really teaches them. They learn how to deceive and to cry and to lie and to trick and deceive. Have you ever seen a little Johnny when he comes into the room there and you know you've got this glass vase that's been sitting on the desk there and the glass vase is there and Johnny's in the room playing and you hear crash. Nobody's in the room but little Johnny. The vase is crashed and when you come into the room, what does Johnny say? I don't know how that got there, Mom. I don't know what happened. It just fell. And you say, Johnny, it's been sitting there for three years. It didn't just fall. Johnny knows how to lie and to try and deceive. Children learn how to pit one parent against the other one. You don't teach them that. They learn how to do that. They know how to cry and to pitch a fit to get what they want to. From very early, it is in us. And that's why, well... Uh, Psalm said that we don't don't spare the rods. Anyhow, I won't talk about that anyhow. But it, you know, we have to learn how to discipline our children also. Amen. Let your children run wild. Let your children tell you what's going. You be the parent in your home. Why is that? Is it because you're being a parent? No, you're dealing with sin, and we need to stop sin as its source because all of us are sin centric. It is the point of view. It is the way that we see life according to those things that have been taught to us. And so then there's only one answer. We have to shift now from being sin-centric, and we have to go to Isaiah, the 55th chapter. Go to Isaiah 55. <clears throat> In Isaiah 55, it tells you one more point of view that I want you to get. And this is the point of view that we should leave here with today, that we have to work toward. Isaiah 55 and verse 8. Isaiah 55 and verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than you. That is a theocentric point of view. That's a God-centric point of view. God says, I think so much higher than you even think. I have plans for you so much higher. I have plans of peace and of a future for you. I have so much more. You see, we haven't learned to think the way God thinks yet. 
When we do, we will become a nation of powerful people, powerful to give the message, the three angels' message to the world. But we haven't gotten it yet because we're still stuck on being Eurocentric, on being sin-centric, and we haven't learned to be theocentric, to see the way God sees things. When that happens, the petty things in our lives will become nothing. And you won't worry about the sister who came and sat in your seat in church. You know, we get, we get bothered by this. She knows, she knows I sit here every or someone parking in your space, or other things that are so petty that we look at and we see in others, that's because we're still sin-centric, and so we're still dealing with petty things. But God wants to promote you and I so that we come to a different mentality where we stand and we say, I am here like Elijah. Remember Elijah when he went before King Ahab, and Ahab said, oh, is it you that's been troubling Israel? And what did Elijah said, no, it's not me that troubles Israel. It is you, and actually he, he, he he said, it's you and your father. Now, where I came from in America, that's called playing the dozens. He played the dozens. He said, it's you and your daddy. You're the one that has caused the sin problem in Israel. I want you to know that God needs some people who can change their point of view over from being sin-centered in everything. And we have to become God-centered. Why? Let's come to our closure now. Go with me over to Revelation once again. Revelation, the seventh chapter. <clears throat> Revelation, the seventh chapter, God says, I need some people who are going to rise above it, and I will have them. God says, I'm going to have a group of people who will do that. I'm in Revelation, the seventh chapter. I read it to you before. I will read it to you again when you see me again. If you do, I'm going to read you Revelation, the seventh chapter. This is specific for the Adventist church. I want you to see this. Revelation, the seventh chapter. Revelation 7, 1 through 3, if we can get there, Revelation 7, 1 through 3, and I'm going to start. And after these things, <clears throat> I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the what for, what do you have? The seal of the living God. I asked you last time, do you know what the seal of the living God is? There's the seal, and then there is the sealing process. The seal and the sealing process. The seal you should know. The sealing process you are in. You are in it right now, whether you know it or not. And it said, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. Verse 3, will you read verse 3 with me all together? Saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, till the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Our forehead is where this battle is fought, my brothers and sisters. It is in the forehead that is the front portion of the cerebral cortex. Our brains are put into three particular categories. You have the, the, the front portion of the cerebral cortex. In the middle is called the parietal cavity of your brain, the parietal. And then the rear portion is called the occipital or occiput. In the occipital lobe, that's where you store information, but it is trained and it is recorded here. And when you speak, it comes from the right behind your forehead, the frontal portions of your cerebral cortex. That is where you actually make decisions, and that's where you actually speak from, that which you stored in the occipital lobe, which we'll talk about time. <clears throat> that information is how you will look at life, what is stored back here. And so God says, I'm going to have a group of people who have stored information in the rear of their brains 
that has actually changed what comes out of the front of their brains. And they no longer see life through a sin-centric point of view. They no longer see life through Afrocentric, through uh, Eurocentric, through age. They see it through God's eyes. And that's what God needs us to rise above. We cannot live in slavery that has gone past. We have to benefit from that and grow from the things there. Take the lessons that it has taught us and move forward. Because in Acts the 17th chapter, God said, I've made all men, all nations of one blood. Everybody's one, everybody in here, if you cut everybody in it, it's still going to be red. God's made us all of one blood. And he will save us all through that one blood. The blood of Christ. So that blood covers all that has been taken on. But you and I must raise our mentality, our way of thinking. We have to get out of what we have been taught and locked into. That is one of the biggest problems with, with many of God's people. You know what the problem is? We know everything. We know so much, you can't be taught. <laughs> and so God comes to change whatever point of view we may have. But we feel, I know, I understand, I got background. But until we give up, until we give ourselves over and humble ourselves and say, Lord, take me, mold me, make me, use me. And then we will develop that theocentric or God-centric point of view where we begin to see other people the way God sees them. We begin to care for people like Jesus cared. It says that Christ had compassion when he would walk past people who were sick. He was in a throng of people, but it said he was stopped because he sensed somebody there. And the Bible says that he had compassion upon that person. He will stop the whole crowd and go there because his compassion was poured out. We have to have compassionate hearts. We have to have hearts that are based in the word of God. That tells us and that outlines how we should think. When that happens, we'll be a different kind of people. We'll be a powerful people for the Lord. God said he can use those people who will allow them, but those who do not, God cannot use. There are those of us who will be qualified and who will be ready, and we will be those who are going to come through this sealing process. The sealing process is something that is taking place right now. Everyone in this room, including myself, we are either being sealed in, are you following me today? I hope you're with me, or you're being sealed out. It is up to you and how you're looking at life and how you are gauging your life and what you are doing with your life. If we have any visitors here today and you've never visited this church, I wonder if there's anybody here who says, I like the things that I see here. I like the way I feel here, and I would like to worship here. I want to ask right now, is there anybody here who is visiting and you're not a member of this church and you're not a member of any Seventh-day Adventist church? Is anybody here visiting who is not a member of a Seventh-day Adventist church? Is there anybody here? You're not a member of an Adventist church anywhere. Look around. Any hands? Not one visitor here. Do you see that? There's nobody here for the preacher to even come in and baptize. There's nobody here for me to make an appeal to to come forward. Do you know why? Because of the way our viewpoint is, you see. We're all into ourselves. We don't know how to go outside of here. Don't you know there ought to be people in here on the Sabbath? There ought to be folks off the street who we have invited in, friends from your job, people who you work with, family from other places, in here, but it's so hard for us to break the train. We love the Sabbath. We come, we get dressed up and we come for it. Oh, Pastor, I think I just messed up. Now I got quiet in here. Folks, we have to get a theocentric point of view so we can go to the world and invite them to come here. You see? We have to even learn how to do that. 
Here we are in church, and we don't have one visitor. There ought to be somebody visiting every week. That's not a condemnation to you, because if we go to the next Adventist church, it's the same way, too. If you go all through and around here, you'll see one or two. But we are not doing what God has asked us to do because we lack the viewpoint. I hope you're listening to me. We lack the vision that God has. We lack the theocentric point of view to be able to go to the world, to let them see Jesus, and to want to come to be where you and I are. My brothers and sisters, there's a sealing process. We're in the middle of it. We have to come to understand that, and we have to gear our thinking and our brains so that we can be used of God. It's my desire today that we will come to understand something. We give in to sin without a fight. We don't even put up a good fight against Satan. For he has deceived us in so many ways until we just come and we say, Lord, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do my life the way I see it. My brothers and my sisters, we must learn to give ourselves Give ourselves over to the Lord and say, Lord, teach me to see the way that you see. Teach me to love the way that you love. This will happen, but we must learn to give ourselves to God the same way, without a fight. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Father and our God, Lord, we have been fighting against you. We haven't totally given ourselves to you. We have explained it. We have come up with reasons. We have come up with excuses, but we haven't just given up and given to you without a fight. We are fighting you, the one who is here to save us. We are in a struggle against you where we should be coming together with you. We are in a struggle against you. And Lord, when you do come, I'm asking that you will pass me not, O gentle Savior. Lord, don't pass us up when you come by. Understand our need and and understand how, how we have been deceived and taken so far away from you without a fight. And how when you draw us closer with the bonds of love, we even resist you. Today, we want that to be broken down. Today on this Black History Acknowledgement Month, we want to make sure that we are giving ourselves to you. And that without fighting you, we are now saying, oh Lord, I want to have a theo, a God-centric point of view. So Lord, pass us not, O gentle Savior, as we give ourselves to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We are always encouraged to know how God is working through this ministry to touch lives. If you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending an email at podcast at savinggracesda.org. As the Holy Spirit impresses you, you may also support this ministry financially by visiting SavingGraceSDA.org.